welcome to another episode of the Eureka podcast, Technically Speaking. I'm Alex Moyle, and today I'm interviewing Oli Park, Chief Data Officer of Reykjavik City. Many of the clients that we work with are looking to use data to not only improve the service they deliver to customers, but also improve the efficiency of the business internally. Oli's going to share his story of how he's building a data-driven culture for the city of Reykjavik. Welcome to the Arico podcast, technically speaking, Oli Palt Gison. Thank you, thank you. It's an honor. Fantastic. Well, Oli, it's great to, to have you here because uh, you are doing a job that most businesses are getting their heads around, but you're doing that with the government. Uh, yeah, so that's, you're, that's you're, you're starting a data team for the Reykjavik city, is that right? Yeah, that is correct. Um, yeah, I'm currently serving as the chief data officer at the city of Reykjavik, and and we have assembled a team of data scientists and data engineers, data ops people, and it's just great. Fantastic. So before we get into that, because it's it's really exciting to to talk about what what you're doing, could you explain a little bit about yourself, your background, and and what the remit was of your role when you started? So my background is in mathematics and statistics. So I did my undergraduate in mathematics at the University of Iceland and did my master's in Sweden, in Gothenburg. That was during the financial collapse, the the Icelandic financial collapse. So that was interesting. But then I uh, was offered a PhD position at the University of Iceland in mathematical statistics. And so, so you finished your, your PhD, and what sort of commercial experience had you had before you started working for the Reykjavik government? Yeah, so uh, alongside my uh, research, I was doing a lot of statistical consulting for the university, and that, that was both for the academia and for like various startup companies. So I, 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 I did some statistical consultancy for a computing gaming company here in Iceland called QuizUp, and that was a fantastic experience and worked with a fantastic data team there. And I got a glimpse into the commercial data world there. And, and that was great. Was that data at a level where you're seeing how sticky the game is and how you increase? Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that, mm. And also, this is where I was introduced to the notion of what is the value of your analysis? Why are we... Why are we doing this at all? But because when I was fresh out of uh, out of the academy, I just wanted to do some cool statistics and and train some statistical models. That was that was I was all about that. But but it was such a great way to experience this firsthand. Just have someone asking you, okay, this is great, but why are you doing this? What is the value you're bringing oh. to this company? At a first. Glamps, I thought that was just ridiculous to ask me a question like that. Uh, well, I'm just going to do this. And you were like, do cool. you have any idea how cool the model I built <laughs> yes. is? Yeah, you, yeah. Like, this is just amazing. Yeah. This, this, those are the exact words I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like, We're not paying for cool. We're paying for people yeah. giving us more money. Yes. And the notion of value can also be, this is going to be something that we're going to talk about today. Um, the notion of value doesn't necessarily have to be monetary value. It can also be that you're providing some kind of service within the organization. And once I started to understand that, that the, the value proposition isn't necessarily about money or monetary aspects, then, then you know, I went through 
kind of this paradigm shift in the way of thinking. Fantastic. And so how did you end up at, at Reykjavik government? Because most local authorities are fairly comfortable with what they're doing because that's what they've always been done. And bear in mind, I'm judging this on local authorities yeah. in the UK. Yes. How, well, did, how, did, like, how did you end up with a data team in a, in a government? It's been a ride. It's been a long ride. And I guess we need to go a few years back. So when I graduated, uh, when I, graduated I, I started doing this consultancy more. And I ended, ended up with leaving from uh, the academy and, and joined an Icelandic software company called LS Retail. And from there, um, I was kind of, somebody hinted to me that I should uh, go for a job at Landsbanken, which is the biggest bank, bank in Iceland. Okay. And I was work, working there previously, assembling a data team and, and being part of a data team. And uh, I, I have to... Uh, shout out to the data team at Landsbank. In, uh, they kind of put th- this whole journey up to the next level for me. Um, I was working there with a fantastic team and a fantastic uh, boss. Shout out to him. I felt like when I was working for Landsbank, like, okay, this is how we can do things. And we are providing value within the bank. We are doing something that matters for the customers of Landsbank. And, and also, the customers within the bank. So I was providing value to other departments. And that felt great to empower others with the analytics products. And, and, and so how did that then transform into, because you've gone from bank, which is very commercial, yes. into local government. Yeah, indeed, it's very commercial. But the, if we generalize it, um, it is still the notion of, as a data scientist and as a data team, you're providing value to somebody. So that was the notion that I, would, I had a complete buy-in into this notion. But to be frank, it just started with an ad in the newspaper. It was like a physical ad in a physical newspaper, like paper. And I saw the <laughs> ad. And, and it was very old-fashioned and old-school. So, um, and what was the, what was the remit? Because I'm, I'm assuming you were the first data analyst within uh, the, the government. I was maybe not the first data analyst, but I was the first chief data officer. So with some, let me phrase it like this, with some authority to make decisions. And that was fantastic. So the ad, it was so cool. Like they, they were asking for, okay, if we have this open tier for chief data officer and we want to change the city when it comes to data-driven decisions and empowering the citizens with the use of data and, and AI. And I was just, I, I love the notion that the government and the city where I live was thinking along, along these terms, along these lines. And I guess, so the momentum was already there when I came in. They they had the notion of okay, we need to go this. And so, path. who was the who who was who was the sponsor within the the government for that? Because that, yeah, it's not just about hiring someone because like public sector are great at hiring people to do things, but there's so much inertia to actually execute that change. Yeah, abs- absolutely. So I guess the head of my department is the is the main guy there in some sort of ways. He, he is a facilitator of chains in so many ways and shout out to him as well. What is really interesting and, and I feel so uh, honored by is that we are getting buy-in from the city council itself, understands and more importantly, believes in data-driven decision-making and they act as such. 
So we are empowered by them. There's plenty of people going to be listening to this podcast and think, right, okay, Mm -hmm. well, we might want to do more with data, but we've got leaders within the organizations that are a bit skeptical or need convincing. So if you're trying to build a data-driven culture or data-driven decision-making culture, where do you start? Yeah, this is the question. And and I was fortunate enough to have somebody already started along this path for me. But let me say this. So when I when I joined Reykjavik and City as the chief data officer, my first order of business was to be this, you know, this harbinger of change. The way you communicate to other stakeholders, so let's say executive stakeholders, the way you communicate must be like this. You need to demonstrate the value you're bringing and you have to explain it in terms that they understand and they relate with in their own business. And this is the key. You need to be the Brits, you need to be the communicator, and you need to show them specifically how you can bring value. So how do you know what, what they value? The thing is, uh, as a statistician or as a data scientist, uh, we need to understand that we don't know. We need to have an open dialogue with them. And let's say it, this happens through open communications and open dialogue, but you have to be open for changing your own mi- mindset to match theirs. Before, like, let's say, before you go and talk to um, the welfare department or school and leisure or, or, or urban planning or something like that. Um, so what you're telling me is your first meeting with, like, the head of schools and leisure wasn't, let me show you my great model. Yeah, it, no, it, it's more like, let me show you what kind of products can be built. Let me show you an example of products that did succeed. And let me show you how they brought value to their customers or to their employees or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, then if somebody is listening, that it, they will catch on and, and they will realize, hey, okay, maybe I can do this or maybe I can do this. Before you, before you showed the products, would you say you spent some time learning the problems that they had or the challenges they were trying to address day to day? Yes, you, if you have like before you have this conversation, before you go into it, you need to have some idea on what they are doing. Something you have to do in order to have this conversation. It's like you if and use a metaphor. It's like you're bringing out your service board. Like I'm just. I have it all here. These are the things that I can do for you. You have to help me understand where your main value is. And if you got buy-in, buy-in from them in terms of value, if they come to you and say, hey, if you if we take this project here, can you help me identify these things? Did you find that some people wanted something different from where you felt the value you could bring was? This is always difficult because they even though I think that this area one is not of value to them, that's not my place. Um, they know where the value, their value is, but you need to, if you want to, let's say if you want to do a model, build a model, or if you, you want to do something to service that value differently, that, that is a different topic. But if, if they say like, okay, I need this, this is important for my operations. If you want to, get your 
you like we have a saying in Iceland, you get a feet into the door. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If if you want to do that, then you have to show them value with open communications or do a project for them and show how you you yeah. can bring value. So sometimes those little initial projects are actually very small and very easy uh, because they don't necessarily understand the bigger picture of what they could yeah. achieve. It has happened to me so often during my career that the small projects that I didn't know beforehand, they were the most valuable projects. Let me give you an example. I'll just give you an example of a project that is, um, I, I, I'd say it's a huge success for us. And, and it was a relatively small project compared to other projects for urban planning. We built a data product where you go onto a site and hammer in your address. And it will show you the nearest bin site, and it will show you the shortest walking path. So we have uh, we're building this product that that they have built, which we facilitate and we use to calculate the shortest walking distance. So we're using something that they already made. They have an API on top, and we use it. The first version of the product was just that shortest walking distance and this particular place. But then we were asked, and this is the small important thing, can you add data on, since you have the address, can you add data on when you know your bins are emptied? Can you add that into your product? Yeah, we can, we can match the data. So you go there and, and hammer out your address and you'll get the short, shortest path to, to, to the location of the bins, but also the next time your own bins are going to get emptied. So the data in question isn't huge. The models aren't, there aren't any models as such. There, you know, there are some you know, calculations of distances, but the value is huge because we didn't have this product. And for the owner of the waste collection, that's fantastic for them. By using data effectively to give a better service, you actually reduce other potentially demand on yeah, other services, yeah. such as visits to the main. Absolutely. Main what, a, what a fantastic point. That this is, is exactly what happened. It turns out that one of the most frequent requests we get at the service desk, we know this because we are in good dialogue with this service request and we have data on it. And most of the... F most frequently asked questions are, when are you going to empty my bins? <laughs> yeah. And now we can just like, hey, there, there, there's an app for that now. Um, and just imagine, it was someone's job every day to go, where do you live? It's yep. picked up next Wednesday. And, and, and look up in some system and it would take a minute. This is an example of a, a data product that is relatively, I'm going to say easy to build, but uh, it's easy in the sense if you have the data, but you, there's so much underneath. You have to have somebody building up this data set. You have to have a data on locations. You have to have an infrastructure of data, and most uh, public organizations already have that. So we are just we are just standing on the city's shoulders in a sense. We are just binding it together. One of the things that I think data teams and data cultures can benefit from is the ability to learn from the past. How has the data that the government has collected in the past helping you with what you're doing for the government today? One good example of this, and we are still working on this, is um, during the financial collapse in Iceland. Um, and in Reykjavik in particular, 
there was the collapse impacted the society as a whole from a financial point of view, from a social point of view. During that time, uh, various data sets were collected on the well-being of the citizen, on the state of uh, on the state of finance. So we have all the data. So we, we know that unemployment rates, how, how they work. We have an insight into that. And we know when they inflate, we know how it will impact in some sense, glimpse into how it will impact people. And we are trying to do the same thing now in the wake of the COVID epidemic. So it is impacting our society at a fundamental level, both monetary or financial or and so and socially and we're trying to be ahead of the curve in some sense so we can intervene whether it be socially or financially uh, in different areas demystify that for me so that that sounded great but yeah. give me an example of how that might affect the, the the lady or the man on the street so one of the actions that is not maybe in the lady or man on the street but uh society level we have decided to invest in innovation. We see it in other collapses and financial collapses that investing in innovation can bring back prosperity and jobs. So this is something the city has already done. This is one of the first things that the city did during the, the, the first wave of the epidemic. Since we predicted, the city predicts that it will, the epidemic will affect the citizen on a financial and a social level. So investing in innovation is an example of a counter-move. In Arico, we're a, we're a hub for, for digital innovation, so we see the output of that. The nature of government is that they pull a string today and it might be six, nine months before you yeah. actually see the effects of yeah. that. So learning from the past, they, they, they've been able to act earlier. This is an example of that. So we know... In broad terms, I'm, I'm going to say in really broad terms with high, high confidence and broad confidence intervals, what's going to happen. And we know that uh, one of the counterplays uh, uh, that we can play out is investing in innovation. And th- this is a long-time effort. A short-time effort is, this is more of the state level, um, the, the Icelandic state as a whole, maybe not the city level, is that how we can how can we address the employment rate? So currently, people who lost their jobs are getting financial aid, which is something to help them make ends meet until the wheels of the economy start to spin again. But are you able to, to use data to assess which industries have been most impacted by job losses and therefore stimulate certain economies to, to employ yes. people? Absolutely. And we are using data now to get an insight into what communities could be expected to get get hit the hardest. Um, And we we have a a broad idea which neighborhoods and which jobs are going to get hit hard during the epidemic. Right. So uh, I'm, I'm talking about this really broadly because I can't go into details. I appreciate that. But it's great to know that if you've got a government that's engaged in that, they can be mm-hmm. proactive in providing support yeah. rather than waiting yeah. for mm-hmm. sort of Johannes to, to be on the news saying it's really yeah. unfair, this hasn't happened. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what the data team is doing now uh, is we are collecting 
vast amounts of data and we will build we're building a dashboard that is monitoring the effects of the epidemic on the cities from from various different points of view one of the things i i wanted to ask is that from a technical perspective what sort of mm-hmm. tech stack do you use and what tools are you finding most useful yeah okay um so <laughs> It's interesting that this discussion is way easier uh, in some sense. Uh, so <laughs> the the human condition discussion, like it's it's so unintentable. But uh, all right, let's go into the tech stack. So so we are building up a new tech stack for the city. So uh, when I think about the both the talent set and the tech stack for a data team, it's in layers. So the first layers is. Uh, a data ingestion tax stack and a data warehouse. Data so ingestion, what, did you say? Yes. Um, How do so, you bring data into the machine? Yeah, absolutely. Like we sometimes call them data pipelines. Okay. But when you when you're doing this, you're hooking to source systems, or you're hooking to some IoT system sensors, or or we're hooking into just hard drives and getting Excel sheets. So, so various different so source system is a broad term. So we need to gather data from what the sources. What challenges have you had gathering that data? <laughs> this is, I think, when it comes to technological challenges at the city, this is the greatest challenge. Data are in old source systems. Data are on various different hard drives. And what I should maybe have mentioned earlier is that the ownership of data is not necessarily clear, uh, which I feel is in really important for the city as a whole is that some data sets should be owned by a particular department because it's on their subject. They are the experts and they need to make sure it's correct. Right. And they need to be responsible for the data. And so the challenges are on the human side, it's the ownership and gathering and you know measuring things. But on the technological side, it's getting access and sometimes when we get access to old databases, I had an interesting example of that. Um, we wanted data on the number of phone calls to the service, uh, to the city service desk. And the phone call data is stored on ancient machines. I think they were built like before the industrial revolution. Um, and, <laughs> but like seriously, like the data, when we entered that data domain, Everything was unclear. We, like the data structures were unclear. Nothing, nothing is properly uh, defined. Then we need to go ask the provider. Oh, what does column number A mean or column number zero zero three? Like we, we we have no idea what this is telling us. So it is the getting access of data part and sometimes making sense of the data, especially when it's in ancient source systems. Yeah. And, 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 and any step, any step, I mean, we work with lots of different companies and we spend lots of time going, this is your shiny new toy. Uh, yeah, behind yeah. the scenes, you've got yes. like, you've got <laughs> elves working the loom. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I think that's a good enough metaphor for how we work. So we need, like, when you're building these pipelines to the source systems, we can, we can, we have to make sense of what is happening. So then we have, different architecture that's available at Plus is just taking the data from the source systems in a, we call it a raw format. It's just yes. the same structure and format as in the source systems, but we have a copy on a on a database level. We, we call it, a, it's called, a data, what we are using is called a data lake. And then once you have 
have the data in place uh, in your own domain, then the next challenge is making sense of it and transforming it such that you, such that you can use it or analyze it or join it with other data sets. Yeah. This takes time and this is, you need to be precise to do it properly and you need to maintain it. There needs to be some kind of data governance uh, policies in place to say that, okay, uh, I got this data point from, from this old source system and I need to uh, recognize that um, it's being loaded every day. So you need to have bookkeeping on the data. You need to have data on data. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And, and which, is there a particular sort of technology that you're using to help drive be the engine data? How we store data now, what we aim to do is we want to use a data lake architecture. Um, on a data lake, and so there are various providers that can go into data lake architecture and do the legal reasons. I can't go into which one we're using currently, but we're trying various things out. Um, so what is nice about the data lake architecture is you can either have it on premise or you can have it in the cloud. So there are pros and cons with these things. If you have it on premise, you need to maintain it. The initial cost is greater, but you know uh, the maintenance cost might not increase exponentially. But in the cloud, um, you know, you, you, you're almost—it's almost—it's a software service. It's almost plug and play, but you need to uh, pay attention to your to your fees. If you if you're starting to gather a lot of data and do a lot of compute computation, the cost might uh, explode yeah. exponentially. Yeah, and and that's—I mean, when we when we work with clients that are moving to the cloud, how you manage that that cost as it were because it's because data is the volume of data is yep. collecting exponentially is even even if you think the number of companies now that are recording more zoom calls mm -hmm. you know just just yes. at that level or and recording more phone calls because they've got people working from home so they've got more governance absolutely absolutely um and, and this you need to so this is a cost to value uh, calculations um so it might be valuable for you as an organization to to have no overhead over the database systems or the data lake systems or whatever you choose. Um, and it certainly is a nice uh, service to just, hey, you can just log in here and, and you know, tech giants will take care of you. So it's nice, but you have to realize what you're getting into. If you realize the cost and the value, um, then, you're, then you're fine. And I guess there's ways of managing that cost in terms of what level of accessibility you have on that data, yep. Yep. What, yep. what percentage you keep on premise, what percentage you keep in yep. long-term storage on the cloud, and what percentage is being processed every day. So it's it's not absolutely. it's not always straightforward. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. That's a really good point. And uh, most of the cloud service providers can, especially in a data lake architecture, then you can uh, define. Oh, this set of data are cold in a sense they are on a low uh, maintenance or low uptime uh, server. The, this set of data is uh, hot in a sense that you, you can do computation quickly and they're readily available uh, like whenever you want them. But, uh, you know, storing them costs a bit more. So you can play around with these parameters. Yeah. And, that, and that's part of whichever organization working with their, their technology partner to sort of facilitate what's right for them. Absolutely. And uh, I would always say, beware of the man that, or the lady that says, move everything to the cloud. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 
that that person's going to be getting a big bonus. So absolutely, <laughs> find someone that wants to build something that works for you rather than their bonus, and and, and do it incrementally. And and okay. when you when when you try this, like try out and, and see whether it fits you. If it doesn't fit, then go back. Try okay. it out with small data sets, and and I sometimes call it complete the technological circle. Just do all the things that you you want to do. Uh, try to build them. It will take a month, two months. And if you're happy with it, and you if you can uh, project the costs and see the the cost pattern whether it's exponential or not, this is then you are in a point or at a place where you can make a proper decision. So yeah. Do this incrementally. Don't throw everything up there and get a, a vendor lock in. Oli, it brings me to AI. So there's a, a hot topic at the moment is how governments are using AI to make decisions on benefits, on services they deliver. What's, what's your view on the role of AI in, in government? That's a fantastic question. So it should, in general, if you can facilitate services in some sense, um, if you can, like in the example I mentioned earlier, if there is a service pattern that can be automized with a algorithm and it, it's not discriminatory in any sense, then it's something you should look into. Um, if it's helping you see how the operations are performing or it's helping you cut down costs, whether monetary or in terms of labor, then that should be looked into. And you, you, you shared previously a story about how you've used that data to begin to be more efficient with how you, yeah. the, you've, in your head office building and, to, and service desks for the government, yeah. how you're using yeah. that to optimize staffing levels. A good example of a data slash data analytics slash AI project uh, would be this uh, example. We are working on this currently and we are we're getting some really nice results in. So the service desks at Reykjavik City has different service pathways. So you can ask for services via phone call. Uh, there's a site on the internet where you can ask for different various types of services. And you can also just show up physically. Or you, you could show up in the before times, before COVID. Or you can now. <laughs> you, have to, you have to wear a hazmat suit. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, we have these three service paths. And the, and the data on the service requests and the service handlement and, and whether the service request was resolved, they're stored in th on three different systems. So, we we, so the service request desk is dealing with a legacy infrastructure. So the first order of business here is to gather the data in order to see what has happened. So we want to have the capabilities of exploring these three data sets jointly. So we can say, hey, number of service requests over the past month or week or year or whatever were this many. This proportion of the service requests were, was for school and leisure. This proportion was for like urban planning. We need to have we call, I sometimes call it, you know, looking in the back mirror. Um, we need to have the capabilities to know what has happened. Okay, that is, I would say, the first maturity level of a data-driven slash AI-powered organization. And we already done that. Um, and this is some in the data world. This is called traditional BI. 
So you, yeah. you, you can explore things that are being measured and have happened, right? Does this yeah. make sense? So we built up a, a, a dashboard for this, and this is help, and this is giving you know the people who are running the uh, service desk some insights into operations. But but the next step, and to here we are entering gathering external data and entering data analysis. Why has it happened? Like if we're getting more service requests on Fridays or Thursdays than Wednesdays, why? Why does that happen? Um, I'm not saying necessarily it's like that, but okay. we need. Or, or like November is super busy, but December December isn't. Why is that? And we are seeing num- number of these cases, and we can now explain them in in most cases. So service re- like the number of phone calls we're getting in have exploded, and that is just due to the COVID epidemic. And the number of you know people showing up asking for requests has you know diminished. So, so, let's, the, so let's say, yeah. for example, you you work out that when mm-hmm. the first snow falls, you yeah. get massive uh, yeah. uptick of requests. Yes. What what, yeah. what does what does your new tool do to help the city deliver better services? Okay, so this is this is a step like to if we we know why things have happened, then we're entering another phase where we can start to predict what will happen, and here we're entering data analysis or statistical analysis. Let's say. Um, what we have seen is there's a certain pattern in the, in the, the service request time series. We can expect certain service requests for, for school and leisure at certain times of the year. Here we're only looking at the time series. And we, we can then prepare accordingly. We know that we're going to get more requests when the school year starts. And then we can have more employees answering their phones. Then it, this is just based on time series analysis, but we can also correlate the service request time series with external data like weather data. And then we can start to find predict external predictors on the service request response variable. Once we have that, like for in an example of, we see a pattern between weather and service requests, and then we can start to inject predictions from, from weather predictions into our model to predict an improved service request. This is future music, but we'll explore this a bit. And then I guess and that enables you to predict how many people do we need on the service desk? Yes. And, and it and may be that, that you only need, and it isn't always about saving money, but rather than having one person answering five calls in a day, they could do the morning in schools uh, and yes. leisure and the afternoon uh, in healthcare. Uh, absolutely. It's all, in this particular case, it's about providing better service and better service to the citizen. And we are ready before, so when we can predict, we are gonna get a lot of service requests today or tomorrow, we can then properly prepare. So this is the day, this is the value part of, of the data-driven process. Uh, making a decision based on your prediction model, in this case, that can increase value. And in this case, providing the value is better service to the citizen. What about the ethical considerations of AI? Let's take the ethics outside this conversation for the, like, let, then let's okay. take it back. So, so, so you're going to so, take us to potentially the place where it could yeah. go, but there's yeah. ethical, ethical <laughs> challenges with this. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, what Disclaimer, is cool, everybody. Disclaimer. Yeah, yeah but, but what is cool is that you can predict what will happen and you proactively uh, do something about it. And, but 
the highest maturity level is you automatically act on it. Like sending out um, an email and telling parents something about uh, the work at school or sending emails about, hey, uh, the roads in Reykjavik are really slippery. <laughs> you should maybe watch out when you go to work. Or, or like sending out notifications like oh, the air quality is going down. You should maybe be close to the main roads. These things, it's nice to discuss them because these are things that everybody knows about so we can set it in a data-driven um, perspective. But when it comes to more obscure topics and we put the data-driven approach, then we need to think about, okay, if I want to have a data-driven approach here at the highest maturity level where I'm, where I'm acting on something automatically, I need to watch out that my algorithm is fair. Yeah. And it's not discriminatory. And this is a huge topic in AI. AI slash data, data driven decision making. Yeah. And I think that the challenge for governments is that individuals have already outsourced that to Google in so many areas of their life. They've outsourced <laughs> yes. it to Facebook, but mm -hmm. they've consciously done that. It's whether people are ready for their government yes. to start going. Now we're entering something that is really interesting. And this is. Uh, Reykjavik is not at this maturity level as of now. We are, we are still like, we need to, there needs to be a human intervention between data or uh, models and output of models and decision. They're still like, uh, but the gap is closing. And here I think um, the data scientist community or like the data community as a whole needs to act ethically. Um, so when you're doing, like let's just say the t a type of analysis that we can discuss now is an analysis where you, sometimes called cluster analysis, where you're categorizing, um, where you're categorizing citizens or service requests or customers. There are these AI machine learning slash statistics algorithms that can categorize your subjects, like your response is a category. These class of models can like say, okay, if you, if you're, you have a set of predictors, that can be your age, where you live, your salary income. The number the, of times you visited the police station. Under yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, 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 and like, yeah, how often were you arrested last year? Something like that. Yeah. And so in the case, so when you have predictors, and if they're unethically chosen, they can give biases into your outcomes because you're building data sets that have predictors and outcomes that are inherently biased to a certain group. If you do that, then you're building an algorithm or a classification algorithm that is inheriting your bias towards society. And this is dangerous. I have really strong feelings about this. Have you seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma? Yeah, yes, indeed I have. Oh, that's like, for anyone that yes. hasn't, that's listening, that hasn't watched that, watch it, because I promise yes. you, you will delete apps after it. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, and, the, and just so on this topic, this is what is happening when you're using the internet. You're being categorized. If you're, if you're type type of person that's, Let's say you search the internet and you're searching for the newest Star Wars movie or the latest Star Trek episodes. Or something. You're going to get sci-fi content. They're going to push sci-fi content to you. And, and what is happening behind the scenes is that you're being categorized as a sci-fi guy or sci-fi girl, right? <laughs> These algorithms can so easily classify you. And they know once you're in a certain classification, 
They know how to properly act on you. They know how to target you with advertisement that you have the highest probability to respond to. And, and, and I guess you know, that's, the, that's the, the ethical so, dilemma for governments. Is yeah. at, what point, at what point does it say, like, we're just content delivering a service, thanks? Uh, yes, and th- this is, I think, uh, something that Reykjavik Data Services will be facing in the coming years. And we should never ignore this. Like in the case of, of um, various social media is, you know, being a data guy, I, I, I understand the models that are being used, but what is something that I have no capacity for understanding is the scale of it, the scale of the models being implemented to classify you. Algorithms on algorithms on algorithms. Yeah, yeah. So. And, and that is, so for me, this is really frightening. And, and something that we should address as a society. And when, when Reykjavik Data Services enters this phase of maturity, we will have this discussion. Um, yeah. Like what we are, what, something that I know we will be doing at some point, but we haven't started. At that point, it becomes a decision for the politicians. Absolutely. Oli, uh, we're out of time. You've been a fantastic <laughs> guest. Your passion for data uh, is is infectious, and I really appreciate you sharing some stories around how the Reykjavik city is looking to improve the life of of residents. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It was it was my pleasure. Wasn't that a great podcast? Ollie was super passionate and excited about data and AI. I'm used to interviewing CTOs and CEOs about how they're using technology to transform their businesses in the world. But what I love about interviewing Ollie is that the government of Reykjavik is looking to improve the lives of citizens through technological innovation. And the upside is everybody can now find out when their rubbish is being collected. We love stories of innovation, so please, please, please contact us if you've got a story to share. See you soon, and this is Alex Moyle signing out. Bye.